Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey there, kids. It's me, Mr. Creepypasta. And I wanted to tell you about one quick thing that David Farrow's actually has going on. And it's something I'm excited about because I think it's something you guys would be excited about. And yeah. If you guys have been enjoying the Neverglade Mysteries like I have, because it's kind of my chance at doing some noir stuff, then you'll be happy to know that the book is available right now, both on digital and paperback. It's available on Amazon, and I actually have the links in the description down below. So, on to tonight's story, but if you want to continue seeing it, or get it straight from the source, check out the links. In a small town like Pacific Glade, death isn't always faceless. It hits you especially hard when you're a cop. That body dragged into the coroner's office, that victim slumped and broken behind the lines of police tape. That could be your neighbor. Your kid's algebra teacher. Or that sweet old lady you pass every week at the grocery store. Death doesn't just come for the people on TV. Death slips by you every day. So close you feel the breeze on your cheeks as it passes. And leaves your world a little emptier. Sometimes you notice... Sometimes you don't, but it changes you either way. My father-in-law, Peter Lambrick, died on an early spring morning. He was gray-haired and stooped, but spry for his age and the carved wooden cane that he walked with mostly for show. He'd bragged to anyone who'd listen about how he'd won the stick off a stranger at the Hanging Rock. Had him sulking in the corner like a raccoon on an empty trash can, he'd say. Never seen the cards hate a man the way they did that day. He was strung up and he knew it. Threw his hand on the table, stormed out, but not before leaving me this beauty. And he'd show it off by dancing a little jig. He called it his wizard's staff. It was his prized possession, his lucky talisman. But even luck can't stop death when it's barreling towards you at 80 miles an hour. He just stepped outside to grab the paper, leaning sturdily against his lucky staff, plodding through the dewy grass to the mailbox. The morning air was cold, and his, his joints must have been aching, but he pressed stubbornly onward, all the way to the street. The newspaper boy had shoved the thing in deep, and he had to set the cane aside to yank it out. I don't know if he heard the engine getting closer. When he set his mind to something, my dear old father-in-law tended to get lost in his own thoughts, and it wasn't uncommon to see him glaze-eyed and staring off into space. The driver of the car was named Vera Hanscom. She was going fast. Way faster than a crappy old minivan was probably built to handle. But there was a wailing baby in the back seat with a spreading rash, and two children who were yelling over each other about God knows what. Poor harried Vera turned back for just a second to put the kids in their place, but her hand slipped as she did so, and the minivan lurched onto the sidewalk like a drunken man. Only for a second. One second was all it took. The van struck Peter head on, sent him flying across the yard. The coroner told me he was dead even before he struck the side of his neighbor's house. Broken back, he'd said, among other things. 
I didn't need to know the details. All I knew was that there would be no more jigs. No more stories. Just glazed eyes forever. Vera knew what she'd done. But she panicked and hightailed it away from the scene with her three screaming children in tow. She might have gotten away, too, if another neighbor hadn't seen the whole thing and phoned in her license plate to the police. In no time, she was surrounded by cruisers, sirens blaring and lights flashing. The terrified mother left the vehicle with her hands up and tears streaming down her cheeks. They took her and the children down to the station, where Vera wept and shook and confessed to the whole thing, her whole body heaving with sobs. Calls were made, officers were sent to bring in the body, everyone was running around trying to keep the situation from getting any worse. It was a big mess. In all the confusion, everyone forgot about the rashy little infant whose wailing had given way to a soft, pained whimper. In a matter of hours, the baby was dead. Vera didn't even notice until she tried rocking the tiny corpse awake. Well, she hadn't broken before. That was the crack that split her open. People say her anguished cries could be heard for miles. Karma, some might say. A life for a life, which is... Which is bullshit, of course, because no cosmic force was watching over that road, none that cared anyway. Death came and death went, and left two big holes where it had been. That was that. The story went on. This time, it was missing a couple of players. Nico Sanchez was the one who called us at home, and Ruth, Ruth was the one who answered. I didn't know what they were discussing at first, but I saw Ruth's smile slip. Saw her warm persona falter for just a moment, and I knew enough. She composed herself quickly and listened to what Sanchez had to say, but that half-second slip had, had said it all. And even though I never saw her cry, not even at the funeral, I knew it was taking everything she had to keep herself composed. She did it, though. She smiled to the mourners and told them stories and hugged them close and eased their pain, even when she herself was hurting. Guys, well, I was Ruth. I was the cop. But she had always been the fighter. Awake was a quiet affair. Peter had been one of those rare souls who actually moved to the Glade and stayed here. Something about the place seemed to discourage visitors from staying long, but not Peter. He loved the trees. He loved the cool summers and the way the sun set so strangely. So he planted himself down, and before long, it was like he'd lived here all his life. The consequence of this was that most of his family lived outside the Pacific Glade, and they apparently had no desire to come here, not even to see him off. Ruth's cousin Trina was the only member of the Lambert clan to show up on the day of the wake. The rest of the mourners few as they were, were neighbors and friends, fellow gladers here to honor one of their own. The Locklear funeral home wasn't extravagant, but Ruth had worked with the family to drape the visitation room in violet banners, Peter's favorite color, lay out a table of small refreshments. I grabbed a glass of water and eyed the vegetable platter, wondering if it would be distasteful to munch away during my father-in-law's wake. Ruth wandered by me, and I took the opportunity to leave the food and join her by Peter's casket. The dead were just sleeping, I thought, and not for the first time. Ruth's dad looked like he'd simply nodded off for a bit. The coroner had set his limbs straight, and 
giving his cheeks a blush he'd never had before in life. I've seen plenty of corpses. After the whole embalming thing, most of them look like a waxy mannequin. Peter looked like he might wake up at any moment. A familiar stick lay with him in the casket. The cane had survived what its owner had not, whole and unbroken. It now rested under Peter's cold hands. His talisman would go to the grave with him. Did I ever tell you uh, he took me flying? I said. Back when we were engaged, he rented a helicopter, uh, somehow, and flew us all over the glade. Had no idea he knew how to pilot one of those things. He'd do all these dips and dives and scare the shit out of me. And every time, he would laugh, that wheezy, good-natured laugh of his, and I knew... I knew we weren't in any real danger. Took a sip from my glass. One point, he even let me take over. Looking down at everything, God... Ruth, it was... It was incredible. It's like being one of the birds. You never really appreciate the trees until you see them from up there. The lakes and the rivers and the highways cutting through the forest. It looked like one big nervous system, like this this huge engine keeping the glade in motion. It puts things in perspective, you know? Ruth didn't look at me. She swished the water in her own glass and stared down at her father's body. I never knew he flew, she said. But it doesn't surprise me. That always did seem to be reaching for the sky. I kissed her hair and held her close for a moment. She leaned her head against mine and sighed. That was the moment I expected the tears to flow, for all the sadness to come gushing out, but after a few seconds, she gently detached herself and went to talk with her cousin. I listened to her hushed voice, but couldn't make out a word of the conversation. The wake went on for another couple of hours as mourners straggled in and out. I finally gave in and went for the hors d'oeuvres. It barely been touched, which seems like a waste to me. And I was in the process of biting into a canopy when my son Rory approached, holding a cup of water. He was small for his age, and the suit that we rented for him looked absurdly big on his tiny shoulders. He picked at his cuffs and stared up at me. It looked like he wanted to say something. What is it, Rory? He bit his lip, eyes wide, and I thought, a little bit scared. For a second, I thought he wasn't going to speak at all. Then, under his breath, he mumbled, Saw Grandpa. I know, I said. It's not easy to see him lying there like that, but... Roy shook his head vigorously. I don't mean in the coffin. I mean outside. A tiny chill went through me, but I suppressed it. I smiled down at my son and patted his shoulder in what I hoped was a reassuring way. Uh, I'm sure it's nothing, I said. But why don't you show me anyway? Rory bit his lip again, but nodded. He led me over to the window by the refreshment table, placing down his cup. He raised a finger and pointed through the glass. Grandpa was out there, he muttered, in the graveyard. He just stood there and stared at me. I leaned closer and I peered out the window. Locklear Cemetery was, was solemn in a dusk light, a sea of jutting tombstones and monuments. The place was deserted started to feel a twinge of relief. Rory's overactive imagination was probably getting the better of him again. But then I saw a slight figure standing in the shadow of a tall obelisk. It's too dark to make out much about him, he, but he appeared to be wearing a pressed black suit. And in his hands, he clutched a very distinctive 
wooden cane. I shot a startled look at Peter's casket. The wizard staff lay there, as always, held beneath those pale dead hands. While I looked back, the figure in the shadow was gone. Did you see him? Rory asked nervously. I... Uh, no, I said. There's someone out there, but it's obviously not Grandpa, probably just some guy paying his respects to a, to a dead relative. I reached out and ruffled Roy's hair, even though it felt forced to me. Probably Roy, too. He looked unconvinced. A slight frown tugged at his mouth, his eyes still locked on the window. I looked back outside with him. There was no dark figure anymore, and even if there had been, it didn't mean Roy and I had seen a ghost. A lot of old people walk on canes, so what if the guy out there had, had one that just looked an awful lot like Peter's? This was the Neverglades we're talking about. Weird shit central. I had a bad feeling that whatever we'd seen out there, it's just the beginning. Two weeks passed without incident, and over time I gradually forgot about the specter Rory and I had seen. I had my hands full with other cases, nothing weird for once, just human crimes with human criminals. A man had been killed in his home with a pair of garden shears, and I was pretty sure I knew who'd done it. I didn't have the evidence to make any arrests yet. Nine o'clock Thursday night found me at the Beaver Street Diner, rummaging through a stack of paperwork and trying to spot a thread in this whole tangled mess. I was so wrapped up in my work at first, I didn't notice the faint smell of tobacco entering the diner. It was only when a long shadow fell across the table that I looked up and noticed my visitor standing there. His cigar smoke was a normal shade of gray, and his skin didn't look quite so pallid. But he was still the weirdest looking person in the diner by a long mile. Inspector, I said. It's... Well, it's been a while. He gestured to the empty booth opposite me with a tilt of his head. May I sit? I suppose. I gathered the papers I'd strewn about the table and stuffed them back into the manila folder. The inspector took a seat with the unsettling grace of his. He wove his hands together and leaned forward, the tip of his cigar glowing. I know we haven't spoken in quite some time, he said quietly. And I know you probably have no interest in pleasantries. So I'll cut to the chase. I found a new case. I'd like your help solving it. A waitress wandered over and asked the inspector if he'd like a cup of coffee, but he waved a vague hand in her direction, and she turned back to the counter, looking mildly dazed. I watched her go with an unpleasant clench in my stomach. Can you not do that shit? I muttered. I still have nightmares about that little freak show you put on behind the rift. I don't need you showing off your god powers. The inspector looked hurt, and for a second I felt guilty, but only for a second. It's hard to feel empathy for a being who's literally bigger than a planet. He sat silently in the other booth, still puffing out that toxic smoke, still staring with those eerie purple eyes. Eventually, he broke the stare and looked out the window into the parking lot. I understand where you're coming from, Mark, he said. But I just want to help. All right, so help, then. I drummed my fingers on the folder of the case files. What's this case of yours, and why haven't I heard of it? Not a homicide, he said, turning back to me. So it wouldn't have found its way to your desk. He reached into his sleeve and withdrew a series of photographs, which he scattered onto the table. In the past several weeks, there's been eight separate suicides in town. None of them showed any signs of depression before the fact, 
When I questioned their families, I learned that several of the victims had been obsessed with dead relatives before they killed themselves. Pouring through photo albums, visiting grave sites, digging up old heirlooms from the attic. Three days of this obsession, and then... Death. He began arranging the photos with his slender fingers. All eight of them drowned themselves in their bathtubs. I eyed the photos with some hesitation. To my dismay, I recognized a few of the faces. Chester Maines, Nicole Kramer, Veronica Stapledon, Mike Schneider. They were all familiar fixtures around town. Chester managed the supermarket on Brook Street. Nicole was our senior librarian. Veronica led the local Girl Scout troop, and Mike ran the auto shop down the center of town. I'd just seen him the other month to get my new cruiser checked. He'd been a real pleasant guy, always smiling with a bright laugh and a mouth full of pearly whites. The idea of him killing himself seemed next to impossible. Okay, I said, taking a deep breath. Okay, that definitely is on the weird side. What do you need me for? You know this town, Mark, the inspector said. You know these people better than I could. Is there anything that links them together, any commonality that could help us understand why they might do this? I examined the line of photographs. All the faces, even the ones I didn't know, looked like neighbors to me. The pictures were exactly what the news would show when their deaths were reported to the public. Smiling mouths turned to the camera, rosy cheeks, laughter in their eyes. The news didn't want death to be faceless. It's like... Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's like the newscasters wanted to say, look, look at this happiness, because, because that's all you get. That happiness is dead. Now it's just emptiness. Empty rooms, empty hearts, empty homes. Hang on, I said. I have an idea. I flipped through my case files and pulled out a map of the Neverglades, which I'd been using to mull over the Garden Shears killer potential hideout. I grabbed my pen and I marked an X over the supermarket on Brook Street. Then I drew an X over the public library. The inspector watched me work, pensive smoke billowing out of his mouth. What are you doing? He asked. Each X marks a place where the victim lived or worked, I said, placing another above Veronica Stapleton's house. If this thing is widespread, then maybe there's a sphere of influence, uh, an epicenter. It could be like the entity in the radio. I don't know. Some kind of suicide wave. Another X over Mike's auto shop. Four marks hardly made a pattern, though, and I struggled to think of what I was missing. And then a thought came to mind. Roy pointed out the window at a strange figure with a dead man's cane lurking in the shadows of the gravestones. I reached out and scrawled a final X over Locklear Cemetery. What happened there? The inspector asked. Dead relatives, I replied. He said the victims all got obsessed with dead relatives. Well, that's where my son saw my father-in-law up and walking, at his own wake. I looked up at the inspector. I saw him too. The inspector leaned back in the booth and ran a thumb across the brim of his fedora. Interesting, he mused. Perhaps the victims all saw their dead relatives before they... Hmm. 
He didn't finish. But I got the implication. I'm not feeling particularly suicidal, so don't worry about me, I said. Let's just see where our epicenter is. I took the pen and drew a rough, wobbly circle through the five X's. Inside the circle was a shapeless mass of trees, and inside them, clear and blue and perfectly round, was... Lake Lucid. The epicenter is Lake Lucid. Of course. The inspector shot upright in his seat. Of course, he said. Of course. Mark, do you know where the main water supply for those five locations is? Well, I can't speak for most of them, I said, but I know that Locklear Funeral Home uses filtered water from the lake. It's barely a mile from the shore. The inspector rose from his seat and began pacing beside the table. A few amused patrons looked over at him, but he either didn't notice them or didn't care. The water's been contaminated. When consumed, it induces hallucinations, obsession, uh, depression. Enough exposure and the victims drown themselves in it. He stopped and turned to face me. I think I know exactly what contaminant we're dealing with. Do you now? I said. You've known me long enough, Mark. Of course I do. Now come on. We must get down to the lake and stop this thing before its influence spreads across the entire glade. He spun around and strode out of the diner, his coat flapping behind him as he walked. I watched him go, and in spite of myself, I smiled. He looked so gung-ho when he caught the scent of a case. Kind of reminded me of... Well, me, actually. Back when I first joined the force. All swagger and confidence and full of stuff of justice. He's a monster, my brain whispered. He could crush your family without blinking an eye. But that little warning was getting easier to ignore. Monster or not, he was here to help, and deep down, or not so deep down, really, I think a part of me had really missed that guy. Lake Lucid was dark and starless when the inspector and I arrived, pulled my cruiser into the parking lot, and stepped out into the cool night. The moon was hidden behind a thick layer of clouds, and the surface of the lake had a strange, murky sheen I'd never seen before. We approached the shore and watched the wavelets lap at the sand. So the suicide wave is coming from somewhere down there, I said. I looked skeptically at the grimy water. I hate to break it to you, Inspector, but unless you got scuba gear tucked away in some secret pocket dimension, we may be at a dead end. The Inspector stared thoughtfully at the moonless sky. Thin smoke drifted from the end of his cigar. Then he turned to me and scrutinized my face. I didn't like it. Made me think of a scientist squinting at a disappointing test subject. Hold still, he said at last. Uh, what are you... The inspector removed his cigar and blew a cloud of blue smoke into my face. I coughed and sputtered, and the smell was rancid like rotten fish. And then a searing pain stabbed into my neck, and the, the breath whooshed out of me in a gasp. Trying to draw in air was suddenly like gulping in a vacuum. I lurched forward and plunged into the lake, my body flailing. I hit the water with a tremendous splash and sank beneath the surface. The lake was cold and murky. Through the cracks of my eyes, I could only make out tangles of weeds and a few darting fish. Water rushed into my mouth, but instead of choking me, I... I slurped it into my lungs. It was cool. A sated sensation. I clapped my hands to my neck and felt a series of tiny slits that hadn't been there before. They flapped outward with each breath, releasing a stream of bubbles. There was another splash as the inspector dove in after me. He floated in the murk, the tails of his trench coat splaying like a manta rays. Still hadn't let go of that damn cigar. The glowing orange tip somehow refused to go out. Girls? I shouted. 
my voice burbling outward in another stream of bubbles, muted by the water. You gave me fucking gills? This is exactly the kind of shit I'm talking about. You can't go playing God and fuck around my body like this. I'll remove them when we're done, the inspector said, touch defensive. Besides, it was necessary. You couldn't possibly hold your breath long enough to accomplish what needs to be done here. I gingerly touched the slits in my neck. A little warning would have been nice, I grumbled. The inspector responded by kicking his legs and swimming further into the lake. Follow me, he said distantly. If I'm right, this thing is buried deep. You're going to have to dive all the way to the center. I swiveled in place and swam after him. I'd fully expected my sodden clothes to slow me down, but whatever the inspector had done to my body had apparently made them waterproof. It had also made me a better swimmer. I slipped through the lake like a human torpedo, my fingers brushing through strands of underwater plant life and disrupting tiny schools of fish. The inspector clung to the floor of the lake, so I did too. We sent clouds of sand whipping around us as we passed. After a minute or two of swimming, the ground sloped down sharply. I noticed a dark shape hovering in the gloom just in front of us. Alligator, my brain panicked before I told it that was stupid. The shape grew closer as we approached. It had four limbs, a small head. It wasn't moving an inch. It was wearing a soggy black suit. Panic swept in me again, and this time it didn't subside. I swung my arms around and came to a clumsy halt. Jesus! I cried. Bubbles shot in a stream from my mouth. The inspector turned to look back at me. Mark, he said. What do you see? His eyes were still a piercing purple, even in the murky water. It's... It, it, it's my father-in-law, I stammered. Uh, his body, I mean. It's just... It's floating there. Peter's corpse was pale and bloated. His open eyes stared off into the cloudy lake. I watched as the currents from the inspector's passage spun him slowly in a circle, his wispy hair floating out in all directions. The urge to puke came over me, but I swallowed it down. There's nothing there, the inspector said, staring past Peter's body. The lake is making you hallucinate, Mark. It's just the contaminant doing its work. Yeah. Yeah, I said. Yeah, yeah, of course. But the body sure as hell looked real. And I was afraid that if I reached out and touched it, my hand would brush against the threads of his decaying clothes. I shimmied past him, keeping my eyes averted, and followed the inspector deeper into the lake. The water was getting colder down here, although it would have been ten times worse if my clothes had been sopping wet. It became clear that Peter's body wasn't the only one floating in the lucid lake. The inspector and I passed a second corpse, and a third. Then a pair of them had drifted into one another and gotten tangled. Their faces were pallid, but I recognized them. They were the suicides from the inspector's pictures. I knew they weren't real, I knew I shouldn't look, but I couldn't help myself. The bodies were so small in death. Even Mike Schneider, the burly auto mechanic, had a drained feeling about him. I kicked my legs and did my best to maneuver past the drowned. Then I recognized other faces, a mangled Edgar Guerrera, the first victim from the Time Eater case, a headless Harvey Jackson, bullet-ridden Lester Barlow. The pattern was clear. My stomach lurched as I wove my way through a sea of all the people I hadn't saved. They drifted by me, unseeing, waterlogged, and empty. A small corpse floated my way, much smaller than the rest. Black strands of hair blotted its face. The currents moved his body. The hair shifted, and I found myself staring into the dead face of my son. 
Rory floated there with all the rest, his mouth open in dull surprise. Behind him, Ruth revolved slowly, and Stephen drifted with his arms spread out like a bird. It started to shake. It wasn't because of the chill in the water. It's my family, I said dimly. They're here, Inspector. They're just... That's like all the rest. You're stronger than that, Mark, the inspector said from up ahead. This time he didn't turn around. Don't let the shadow scare you. The real danger is up ahead. I tried to look away, but Ruth's vacant eyes turned in my direction. Then, frozen in an expression of hurt surprise, I wanted to reach out and grab her. Would I lose myself if I did? Would I, would I end up just like my drowned neighbors, consumed by obsessive memories of my loved ones? There! The inspector shouted, I see it! I threw my hand, startled. I hadn't realized I'd been stretching it out towards Ruth. My fingers curled. This time I managed to tear my eyes away. I twisted my body and kicked away from the illusion of my family, leaving them behind in a cloud of swirling sand. The inspector had stopped a few yards ahead and now floated in place. I swam over to him, down on the floor of the lake in the tangle of floating weeds. A bright salmon pink shape was pulsing in the sand. I had the curved carapace of a crab, but the sucker was huge, maybe the size of a small horse. Six broad claws extended from its body and drifted lazily through the water. It seemed to be glowing slightly. I peered a little closer and saw that the glow was actually a cloud of neon pink smoke issuing from holes in the creature's shell. Uh, that's one ugly motherfucker, I said quietly. Is it giving off a pheromone or something? Or something, the inspector said. The dream crab secretes a gas that causes visions and intense mood swings. It likes to squat at the bottom of ponds and lakes until it's tainted the water supply. Then it burrows under the ground and finds a new home. The stupid creature. Can't fathom how it managed to pass through the rift unless... Uh-oh. He interrupted. I think it spotted us. The sand around the crab started to roil, shooting great dust clouds into the water. A ring of beady eyes popped open along the circumference of the shell. I darted back as a low clattering noise ripped through the lake and sent goosebumps popping up and down my arms. Get behind me, the inspector warned. It's about to... One of the pink claws suddenly rocketed forward in a string of sticky sinew, like a ball and a rubber band. The instructor and I leapt aside. I found myself spitting, going head over heels as the ensuing ripple buffeted my body. There was a loud snap as the claw closed on the spot where I had just been. I heard the next attack before I saw it. The chittering grew louder, a thrum went through the water, and then... The second claw was shooting straight at me. I got my bearings just in time to kick my legs and avoid the ensuing snap. The air around me was thickened with that pink smog, blurring my vision and hiding the giant crab from my sight. I floundered for a bit as the claw retreated from round three. This was bad. The water muffled the sound of the creature's movements, and the smog kept me from seeing anything more than ten feet from my face. The gun on my waist wouldn't do shit on a water. I wasn't sure how helpful it would be if I could use it. The carapace looked thick. Bullets might not even leave a dent on that thing. The water stirred again, sand rising up in a spiral, and I knew the next attack was imminent. I spun around and tried to get my bearings, but there was no sign of the crab anywhere. Nothing but that noxious pink smoke and the awful chittering. I braced myself and tensed my muscles and waited for the creature to strike, but when the smog parted, it wasn't the giant crab that I saw. It was the inspector. His coat was splayed out behind him, and his lips were locked tight against his cigar. Rearing back, he puffed his cheeks and blew. A storm of purple smoke burst from the tip of the cigar and crashed into the pink cloud. The smog dispersed, turning to little curled wisps, then vanished. Then the purple tornado swept downward and burrowed into the creature who had been hiding there. 
The chittering turned into a screech, and the smoke coiled up and slipped inside the holes in his shell. I had no idea what was happening underneath, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't pretty. The ring of eyes began to pop, one by one, leaving bloody streaks in the water. The claws flailed for a bit after that, but the fight was gone. Eventually, it slumped onto the floor of the lake and gave a final rattle. Then went quiet. The purple smoke emerged from the holes and billowed behind the inspector's cigar. I watched as he sucked it all back in one long, heavy breath. The last of the smoke vanished into its tip, which glowed a brief violet, and the waters were clear again. I stared down at the crab's unmoving shell. Christ, I said. And I mean never to piss you off. Is it dead? I melted its internal organs, the inspector said simply, as if that was a perfectly ordinary thing to do. He swooped down to the creature's limp body. I tensed up, fully expecting the thing to snap back to life and cleave the inspector in two, but it really did seem to be dead. The inspector pushed aside its corpse with minimal effort and peered down into the sand. He brushed his fingers along the lake bed, a slight frown on his face. Hmm, he said. So quiet, I barely heard him. Take a look at this, Mark. I swam over and squinted at the ground beneath him. The inspector had brushed the sand off a circular metal plate, a real high-tech gizmo with circuitry patterns across the front and a single bulb in the center flashing a low, pale green. Etched above the bulb was a simple red logo. C-A-P-R-A. Seen that before, I muttered. Where have I seen that? In the forest, the inspector replied. On a capsule with this logo near the entrance to the Wendigo's universe. It's strange, isn't it? Two capper devices. Two ancient creatures that haven't been seen on this side of the rift in millennia. He went quiet, staring down at the metal disc. What is capra? I asked. And what the hell is this stuff doing at the bottom of Lake Lucid? I don't know, the inspector said. But I think I know where we can start looking for answers. He lifted the device out of the sand, and as he did so, a thick metal wire appeared, trailing down from the lip of the plate into the lake bed. The inspector gave it a yank, and several feet of taut wire popped out from the ground. We looked at each other, then off into the deeper reaches of the lake. Follow the wire, I said. Why do I get the feeling this is a seriously bad idea? It might be, the inspector admitted. But right now, it's the best opportunity we have. His cigar tip glowed brightly for a second. The light flickered oddly in his eyes. Strange things have been happening in this town. Strange even for me. But I think the answer to everything lies at the end of this trail. Either way then, I said. The inspector obliged by yanking more wire out of the sand and pulling himself along. Hand over hand, I skirted the giant crab corpse, floated along after him. The fish were scarce down here. Probably driven off by the dream crab, or maybe even eaten. So aside from a few straggly weeds, we were alone. There was no sound except the soft rippling of water in our ears. We could have been in another world entirely. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.